Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This episode is going to be one for the books, literally. We're talking to three highly engaging authors, all of whom call California home. What's more, the Golden State plays an essential role in each of their books. We'll start off with a little romance from San Diego County novelist Alana Quintana Albertson. So I really wanted to play with the contrast of Enrique, who's the hero in the book, who is a very wealthy Mexican surfer. But I wanted to contrast him with a girl from a very traditional Mexican family who grew up um, with farm workers. After that, we'll delve into a bit of magical realism in the desert with L.A.-based writer Melissa Broder. Then I was driving back and forth from my sisters in Vegas, driving past the town of Baker, California, which is home of the world's largest thermometer, where the idea of this magic cactus came to me. Then we'll head up to South Lake Tahoe, where author and essayist Suzanne Roberts takes her inspiration directly from nature. One of the things I was looking for is my own feminine view of nature. That's all coming up on California Now. My next guest is a romance author who's written more than 30 books. Alana Quintana Albertson's latest novel is called Kiss Me, Me Amore. On the surface, many of her stories are about romance that blooms between her characters. But underneath it all, they're really an ode to Alana's true love, California. Alana, welcome to California Now. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So tell us about yourself. You were born in the San Francisco Bay Area, but you now live in San Diego, right? Absolutely. I was born in Marin County um, and it was so glorious growing up there, hiking in Mount Tam, Muir Woods. um, And so it definitely shaped everything. But I went to San Diego when I was 20 um, for a ballroom dancing competition. I was a competitive ballroom dancer and it was December and the sunshine was out. And I thought I'm moving here the day I graduate. I went to Stanford and um, I had a job at UC Berkeley and then found um, one opening at UC San Diego and somehow got myself down to San Diego. And I've been here um, ever since. Wow. So wait, so you were a ballroom dancer. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was before it was cool. I'm 47. And so now everyone knows about it with um, Dancing with the Stars. And I know people who were on it. But back then, no one, you know, we had a, a once a year TV show on PBS called Ohio Star Ball, and no one knew about it. Um, but I did competitive Latin ballroom dancing. Um, but yeah, it was my passion, which I've replaced with writing. That's pretty amazing. I mean, so but you call yourself a reluctant writer. Why is that? I mean, how did you get into writing? Yeah, I think that's so interesting because most writers, you know, I teach or talk to always wanted to be a writer and they say I've always written. I never wanted to be a writer. I was a reader um, and I was an English major at Stanford, but I never really saw myself in books. And um, I'm um, Mexican, half Mexican. My mother's Mexican. And, um, you know, I read a lot, especially in college literature of passing um, of uh, black women who, you know, passed as white um, because I felt like that really identified Uh, with me because I was Mexican and I didn't necessarily look at and I didn't kind of really find myself and I didn't see myself in books. Um, And so anyway, I read a book by Elisa Valdez Rodriguez called Dirty Girls Social Club, which was set in Boston, actually. But the characters were college educated Latinas and the book was just life changing for me. And so I started fangirling, uh, stalking would probably be a better word. (laughs) I was literally obsessed with her and I uh, went to several um, conventions she had and I told her all these crazy ballroom stories. And again, this is before Dancing with the Stars. And she said, you should write a book. And I said, I don't write, I read. And so I wrote this horrifically bad chiclet book 
about ballroom dancing and somehow my agent liked it. And anyway, so that started my journey on writing, but I never once wanted to be a writer. So you mentioned your 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 Mexican American heritage. Uh, it sounds like it's had a large impact on your writing. How do you how do you actually bring that into your stories? Yeah, um, for a long time, I think I was almost afraid to um, because you know just with my identity. I mean, I um, and I can um, trace my lineage to original Californios um, with my my grandmother, but. I am Mexican, but, you know, I grew up in Marin County um, and I, my mom is nine of 10 children, nine girls. Um, and I always felt Mexican, but again, I'm half white. Um, I don't necessarily look Mexican. And I just felt like that no one would really believe me if I was Mexican. However, I had all these stories um, with my family and I, tr- I truly felt Mexican. So for the longest time, I didn't feel like I had the right. And my Spanish is horrific. Also, um, I can conjugate any verb for you, but like I struggle to speak. Um, and so it really kind of took a long time for me to really get in touch with kind of who I am and write my stories and not kind of being, a, you know, afraid of putting my culture in my stories. Is it the characters? Is it the situations they get into? I mean, how do you kind of incorporate that into your stories? Yeah, well, what I would say is, you know, I'm Mexican every day. You can't turn turn that off, you know, even if I had some anxiety about um, putting that out uh, earlier that I just really felt that it was the setting. Like I just felt that, you know, California is so rich with everything. And um, I wrote this series because I saw Crazy Rich Asians and it had a profound effect on me. And I really wanted to do something like that. I text my agent, I'm going to write Crazy Rich Mexicans. And I really use setting as a character. And I was, you know, contrasting La Jolla and Barrio Logan um, and different communities. And then in the second book, Kiss Me, Me Amor, you know, the farming community of Santa Maria and Montecito um, and just, you know, kind of showing, you know, our rich California was part of the Republic of California, was part of Mexico and just, you know, talking about all that. I'm working on a historical fiction about um, Zorro, but actually Joaquin Marietta. And um, so to me, I really use setting as part of the culture and then, of course, the characters. But I try to do it organically. Right. I mean, California obviously has had a great impact on your stories. In fact, you've told us that your most recent series, Love and Tacos, is actually an ode to your own love affair with the Golden State. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I call it my um, love letter to California. The first book is set in San Diego. The second book is set in Central California. So um, the characters are in Santa Barbara um, and they go to Carmel. And the third book in the series, which was due a month ago, if my editor's listening, sorry, um, that it it is in Northern California where I'm from, Rin County, um, and goes to Napa. And if there are more books in the series, I have three other areas in California um, that I am going to set it. Um, So basically in each one, I really, you know, talk about the areas in the part of the state, but specifically areas with um, big Mexican or Chicano populations. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about Kiss Me, Me Amor. Um, the synopsis says it's about a romance that, quote, sizzles hotter than Santa Barbara's spiciest salsa. <laughs> That's quite a, a setup. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, um, so I really based this one on my mom's family. Um, this one is based on Taming of the Shrew. Um, and so again, my mom was nine of 10, nine girls um, in a traditional Mexican family. Um, and I was fascinated with that dynamic. And I think one thing as a Mexican or a Latina writer is that kind of, um, since there are not as many books published um, um, by, by Latinas, uh, when when people read a book, they kind of expect to see their experience in that book. And, you know, we're not a monolith and there's such a vast diversity. So I really wanted to play with the contrast of 
um, Enrique, who's the hero in the book, who is a very wealthy Mexican surfer. He has a degree um, in agricultural science, um, but, you know, and he works with his um, dad's business. But I wanted to contrast him with a um, a girl from a very traditional Mexican family who grew up um, with, with farm workers. She also, she owns her her own business, her own farm. Um, but her pictures went viral, which was, um, from a story I read in the newspaper about a girl, her parents were migrant farm workers and she took a graduation, um, pictures in the strawberry fields. Um, and so my mom's family, um, yeah, worked in the farms, worked at picking and so did, I still have, um, family that does. And so I really wanted to kind of create that amazing conflict because in a novel conflict is what pushes the pages forward but it, and kind of have them forced together with you know completely different circumstances and upbringings though they're both mexican so why did you choose santa barbara as the setting for kiss me mia more so my intent from the series from the day one was to kind of go through the state. So again, I started with San Diego and the second one was always going to be Central California. Um, and I really wanted to represent the farm workers there. And then of course, I'm just obsessed with Santa Barbara. I love Man- Montecito and um, Hope Ranch and Carpinteria. And I just, it's glorious. Um, so I wanted an excuse to go there and <laughs> spend some time. Um, but I mean, I, I vacation there um, as a kid a lot. And it's just one of my favorite places in the world. Um, I love the weather as well. I love San Diego, but it does get very hot here in San, Santa Barbara's um, more temperate. And um, I just adore it. Yeah, I know it is a beautiful spot. Speaking of, of the settings, I mean, the California destinations in your books are practically characters themselves. I mean, your previous novel, Ramon and Julieta, is set in San Diego, specifically in Barrio Logan. Um, can you talk about why you chose Barrio Logan as the backdrop for that novel? Yeah, absolutely. I was fascinated. So I've always, since I moved to San Diego, I would always go to Barrio Logan you know, to get to tacos, to eat, to hang out. Um, and I've just watched it change and re- read the news over the years of the gentrification or the hentification. So, you know, gentrification done by uh, fellow Mexicans. And, you know, um, you know, there were galleries that were shut down. And I just kind of was fascinated by the idea of the plot of that novel is uh, Ramon meets Julieta Ramon. His dad owns like a fast food Mexican taco shop and Julieta has an authentic seat to table taqueria and they meet on day of the dead with the makeup. They don't know who each other is. They kiss. And the next day he decides to gentrify or hentify or block. He's going to turn her taco shop into like, you know, a fast food joint and the authentic coffee house into like a Starbucks. And so I really wanted to, you know, play with that. And then all of a sudden he finds out his dad stole her mom's fish taco recipe in the Bahas in the seventies. So I really wanted to kind of talk about that and talk about what happens um, when you push people out who, you know, these neighborhoods, the barrios were created because this is where uh, Mexicans were forced to live. And then, you know, the Navy, took the bay for them and then a freeway chopped them in half and that created um, Chicano Park. And it's such a rich historic neighborhood. And so I really wanted to show that, but then show also, you know, that the people couldn't afford to live there and that they lost the authenticity of what made it special and that it wasn't my favorite line in the book is that it's not some Mexican Disneyland. You know, this is an actual neighborhood with people who live there. I understand that Ramon and Julieta has been optioned for TV. First of all, congratulations. Um, What can you tell us about that? It has been optioned for TV, um, and um, I am so, so excited about it. I can't say much more right now, but I will be involved in it. And um, there was a bidding war, and it was like just the best experience. And um, working with an actress who's 
just someone I adore, a Latina a- actress and Latina showrunner. And um, I, I just can't wait. Congrats. That's that's really great. You. Now, listen, you've lived all over California, but yes. you you're currently in San Diego County. What yes. do you love most about living in San Diego? Um, I love all the different neighborhoods um, and I love that I can go to, you know, as I said, Barrio Logan, Coronado, Encinitas, Carlsbad, Oceanside. Um, and then I can also go into the mountains like Julian is everything's so um, accessible. I also really, really just love the food. There's a really vibrant food scene, which I think has developed more since when I first moved there. I mean, I'm from Marin County, so I would spend a lot of time in Napa um, and the wine country with my parents. Um, So I just think that definitely the food and of course the weather's can't be beat. Okay, let's let's dig down a little deeper. Like we want specifics on the show. We like to get actual recommendations. So let's uh, let's go through some of those favorite neighborhoods or towns that you just listed, and let's talk about like why you love them, and maybe hit a spot where you, you know, have a meal that you or a restaurant that you like. Yeah, I'll t- talk to you about my perfect day in San Diego. Um, again, I get coffee after walking on the shores. I go up to Pinpoint Cafe, which is um, in La Jolla, but it's actually in the UCSD Scripps Institute. It's amazing avocado toast. Another place in La Jolla I absolutely love is Wayfair Bread. Um, it's an incredible bakery, and you can um, walk over there. In Barrio Logan, my taco shop is Salude. It's just absolutely incredible. What do you order there? What don't I order there? Um, so <laughs> I have... The Beria, the Queso Beria taco, which is so good. And then they have this Barrio taco um, that has carne guisada, which a lot of people don't have. So it's more of a stewed meat. They also have an American beef taco that's just really great. Um, and then um, they always have drinks like a Paloma, which is uh, Julieta's drink there. There's a coffee house there called Por Vida um, with amazing Mexican um, coffee there. There's this amazing bookstore called La Bella's. And then if I go across the bridge, which I do often, um, there is this great little French restaurant called Little Frenchies in Coronado. And then, of course, I go to a bookstore there, Bay Books. Um, and I love Coronado. Um, my kids sail on the Coronado Yacht Club team. Um, and so I spend a lot of time there. So many great suggestions uh, for, for people. So before we wrap up, what's next for you? Do you have any new books on the horizon, books that might showcase other regions of the state? All my books are about California. Um, and so uh, right now I'm writing again, book three, which is my fair senior, which is um, going to be the third book in the series. And it is going to be set in Marin County and Napa. Um, I'm currently working on a historical fiction that's set all through California. I'm actually at, at the Sonoma mission. It begins. Um, and it's about Joaquin Marietta, um, and who is the basis of Zorro. Um, and so I'm so excited about that. It talks about California culture. Um, my Hotel California series or California Love. And um, I'm also working about a baseball middle grade book about um, Chavez Ravine that I cannot, but go Padres. So anyway, I had to put that in there. And then I'm also thinking of doing a beach book set in Coronado, um, kind of like a beach summer read um, series there, but um, more in the Gilded Age in the 20s. But all of them will be focused in my beloved state. That sounds like you are very busy and we're just going to have to have you come back on the show to, to tell us about all these other things you're working on. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Alana Quintana Alberton is a romance author and writing teacher who has written 33 novels. To read more about Alana and her books, visit AuthorAlanaAlbertson.com. That's AuthorAlanaAlbertson.com. This is California Now. 
My next guest is the celebrated author, poet, and essayist Melissa Broder. Melissa has published three books set in California, where she says the creative energy constantly fuels her work. Her latest book, Death Valley, is a surreal exploration of grief that centers on a woman who gets lost in the California desert, encounters a mystical cactus, and then confronts some of the very things she's running from. Very intriguing. Melissa, welcome to California Now. Thank you for having me. So before we get into your new book, tell us about yourself. You weren't born in California, but you've made Los Angeles your home. So how did you end up there? So I was living in New York for 10 years, and um, my husband has some health issues. Um, He needed to be somewhere warm, and I was not going to move to Florida. So it became L.A., and I've been here now for 10 years. Wow. So how did your writing career begin? I mean, you were a writer before you moved. I was. um, So in third grade, um, I was a very out-to-lunch bad student, but I began writing poems. And my third grade teacher, Mrs. Hovey, noticed a talent in me, and I liked the praise, and I also liked the writing of the poems. You know, there was a pleasure there. From then on, I continued to write poems and have not stopped writing since. Now, all these years later, your novels, they they have an element of the mystical or the surreal to them. Can you talk a little bit about why you're drawn to that genre? I always say my favorite books uh, contain humor, magic, and sex. And if they have two, at least two out of those three, I'm in. And the fantastical books that I enjoy reading often have, um, they're grounded in reality and then there's a departure. So it's not straight up genre fantasy, but it's more of a grounded in, you know, the world as we know it. And then there's a magical, there's magical realist elements to it. And I also think coming from a poetry background, often archetype can really, or myth can really convey uh, the heart of a story uh, better than just telling the quote unquote facts. All right, let's talk a little bit about Death Valley. Um, the New York Times Review used words like incandescent and triumph. Um, can you give us a brief synopsis? It's a comedic novel about grief and getting lost in the desert. Um, And it's the story of a woman whose father is in the ICU after a car accident, in and out of consciousness. Um, He's been in there for five months. And um, her husband has a chronic illness that is getting worse. And she flees to the desert to work on the quote unquote desert section of her next novel. But really, she is going to, she goes there to escape a feeling. She's trying to escape, which of course you can't because a feeling is inside you, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And while out there, she encounters a magical cactus uh, on a hike that uh, when you go inside, she meets her father at different stages of his life and her husband at different stages of his life and is able to have new time, new perspective with them. While doing this, she ends up getting lost in the desert. um, And it then becomes a survival story. The concept for Death Valley came to you after you actually got lost on a hike in Death Valley. Um, tell us what happened. So originally, so my father was um, in the ICU during COVID um, after an accident. He was on the East Coast. I was on the West Coast. And my sister lives in Las Vegas. And I, we couldn't go see him because we weren't allowed in because of COVID. And I was driving back and forth from my sister's in Vegas, driving past the town of Baker, California, which is home of the world's largest thermometer, where the idea of this magic cactus came to me. I then took another desert recon trip to Death Valley, And I took a hike in the morning. It wasn't even supposed to be a hike. I was just going to Zabriskie Point where nobody, it's a very touristy area. Nobody ever gets lost there. Um, I got completely lost. And 
did everything you're not supposed to do. I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have water with me. I just had Coke Zero. Uh, my phone was dead and my husband who was sleeping in the motel, I didn't tell him that I was going. So I panicked. I was like, how long have I been out here? It had been like 20 minutes, but um, it felt much longer. I ended up um, climbing up this rock face uh, to get back because I didn't know which way was back, but I knew I knew it was up. And I got very um, all cut up. When I made it back to my car and I had stopped crying, however, you know, I was like, oh, this is a gift. My protagonist is going to get lost in the desert and she's going to get lost for more than 20 minutes. You were pretty lucky. <laughs> I was pretty lucky. I mean, granted, at one point, like uh, when I was midway climbing up this rock face and had slid down and gotten very injured, I looked up and I saw all the tourists at Zabriskie. So I was like, oh, that was the moment where I knew I was going to be okay. That was about, I guess, like 30 minutes in. So Melissa, can you read a little bit of it for us? Yeah, absolutely. I chose this desert town as the scene of my escape because it's the fictional home of a cartoon bighorn sheep that enchanted both my father and me in childhood. Whenever I see the town on a map, just north of the Mojave Preserve and south of Death Valley, in the valley of Death Valley, you might say, it makes me smile. According to Google, the town now has two non-chain restaurants, a 50s diner and a Mexican automat, plus a Wendy's, a Jack in the Box, and other highway fare. There's a general store and trading post, an alien-themed gift shop, a small Route 66 museum, a dinosaur park, and a Target. There are five motels. I was pleased to discover online that one of the motels is a Best Western. I love a Best Western, so much so that I'm a rewards member, though I've never earned enough points for a free night. It's an underrated motel, rivaled only by the Holiday Inn in terms of bang for your buck, plus the satisfying in-room comforts you'd find in more upscale hotels. Soft sheets, fluffy towels, square lampshades. The Best Western is cozy, but anonymous. Simple, yet not depressing. Just about the only thing lacking is that they no longer give you the little motel notepad and pen. Let's talk a little bit about Baker, California, the town in your book Death Valley is based on, right? Is it just because you happened to stop there or that you happened to get lost there? Is that why, uh, you know, you placed the book there or is, is there any other reason? I sort of, I, it's not Baker in the book. It's a, I created a fictional town. And what I did was I took every, all the elements that I love from the California high desert and I put them in this fictional town that is set there. So there is an alien themed gift shop. There's a 50s diner. There's a Best Western. Um, there's no Best Western in Baker. Um, I love a Best Western. I basically like took different, I took some of the mystical elements. I, there's no Integratron, but so I took my favorite elements from Joshua Tree and from, from all different like towns and areas and sort of put them in that one spot. But I set it there because it is halfway between Death Valley and the Mojave Preserve. Um, so you have these sort of two areas to play with. Well, you know, like Death Valley, many of your other works revolve around places in California. Can you talk more about how California in general, you know, and specifically its geography and topography, plays a role in your writing? Absolutely. So when I moved to Los Angeles from New York 10 years ago, um, I was a poet and um, I had always had a day job in New York because poetry does not make it rain, so to speak. And um, I used to write my poems on the subway, in, like while I was riding in, on the subway in New York. I could not do that here while driving a car. Um, it is not advised to write poetry on the 405. So 
I began dictating in my phone while I was driving and using like a notes app and Siri to translate. And all of my line breaks disappeared and the language became more conversational um, and turned to prose. And that was how I began writing prose. I wrote my first book of essays, So Sad Today. Um, I then found myself on the I was living in Venice Beach and I was reading a book on Venice Beach called The Professor and the Siren about a man who falls in love with a mermaid. And I thought, why is it always an older man and a young mermaid? What if it's an older, what if it was an older woman and um, a young merman and it wasn't Sappho or it wasn't, you know, Crete, it was Venice Beach. Um, So again, the terrain really influenced um, my work. And um, my book, Milk Fed, is also set in Los Angeles um, at a frozen yogurt shop. For those who don't know, it's, you know, it's a big part of LA culture. LA and California topography and just being here um, have really influenced all of my work to the extent that I don't even know if I'd be writing prose if I hadn't moved here. Oh, that's really interesting. You might have just stuck with poetry and maybe essays. Exactly. Let's shift gears right now away from literary abstractions for a moment and towards some travel recommendations. You've been living in L.A. for a while now. So can we talk about some of your favorite spots? I would say my favorite place for um, my favorite restaurant, and it's very low key, is called Crimson. Um, There's two locations. It's in Santa Monica. It's just a it's called Crimson, a Mediterranean cookhouse. I'm obsessed with their kale salad with grilled salmon, but like their kebabs are great. And it's just like delicious, not crazy expensive, good food. Another place that I would recommend that I really love is the Scent Bar. Um, Scent Bar is a perfumery um, located in Hollywood. It's just like an artisan perfumery. They have like all kinds of sort of niche perfumes. And um, I've always wanted to write a book set at a magic perfumery. So, um, And I think that's inspired by uh, Scent Bar. In terms of hikes... I, you know, the most popular sort of well-known hikes um, in Los Angeles are um, Runyon Canyon and Griffith Park. My favorite hike, though, is um, it's north of Runyon Canyon, and it's off the beaten path, but not too off the beaten path. You can access it. You have to go up Nichols Canyon, and it's called the Trebek Open Center. It's land that um, that was gifted by Alex Trebek. What do you love about it? Um, Well, it's not crowded. There's practically no one there, whereas like Runyon Canyon is um, like a dance club. So I love the sparsity of it. I love the views are incredible. You can see the whole city. And I like to go at sunset. You can see the whole sunset. There's full panoramic views. Um, And the terrain, there's all, you get all different kinds of terrains. So you get like beautiful sort of deserty cacti type foliage. Um, There's even like some residential areas. So it's cool because you get to see like all the houses in the Hollywood Hills. And it's really beautiful to go at sunset and then sort of come back down at night, bring up flashlight and you get to see the stars, which is and it's like one of the few places in L.A. where I feel like you can see stars. Wow, that's really great. How difficult of a hike is it? Not, Not that difficult at all. I am like not an athlete. As you can tell, based on my um, my own getting lost in the desert experience, not a wilderness woman either. So um, it's a it's a pretty easy hike. Where do you go to unwind? That's a very good question. Um, I really like Will Rogers uh, State Park. I like the beach there rather than Venice Beach or Santa Monica Beach. It's a little bit further north, but it's not quite so far from the city as the Malibu beaches. Those are really great recommendations. So listen, before we go, I wanted to ask you. Have you started your next book? 
Yes, and I don't know if it's going to work. So I'm sort of shuffling right now between ideas. But um, I have a very close relationship with Ralph's Supermarket. Ralph's is my supermarket. It's not everyone in LA's favorite. It's very basic, but it's very Los Angeles. And I think that there's a chance that Ralph's Supermarket might be a part of my next book. So once again, an LA institution. Here we go. Exactly. California inspiring your creativity. Exactly. That's so great. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa Broder is an L.A.-based novelist, poet, and essayist. She's written three novels, including her newest, Death Valley. To read more about Melissa and her work, visit melissabroder.com. That's Melissa, B-R-O-D-E-R, dot com. This is California Now. My next guest is an award-winning writer whose passion for the great outdoors in California fuels her literary life. Suzanne Roberts is a South Lake Tahoe-based memoirist and poet. She's written three books and has been named the next great travel writer by National Geographic Travel. Suzanne, welcome to California Now. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So let's start at the beginning. I I want listeners to get to know you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I grew up in Southern California. And I grew up in what my dad always called a concrete jungle. So we had, you know, sidewalks and roads and street lamps. And I always was drawn to nature, whether that was digging in the dirt or collecting insects. We didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't go on very many vacations. But the travel we did do was to some of the national parks. Um, We went up to Mammoth. We spent some time in the Sierra So I fell in love with nature at a really early age and went to school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and studied biology. But once I graduated, I had, I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to do except for a vague notion that I wanted to work in the outdoors. And it was 1993 and the country was in a recession and it was hard to find a job. And so I went on a long backpacking trip. You know, like most college graduates who hate that question, what are you doing now after you graduate? I didn't know what I was doing. And so I decided that I would go on a long hike. And that was my post-college plan. And that trip in 1993 eventually became my memoir, Almost Somewhere. You didn't realize you were basically doing research for your first book, but there you were right out of college kind of going on this trip. But what exactly led you to writing? I mean, liking the outdoors is one thing, but then applying that love to writing. I mean, what drew you to writing? Oh, well, I've always loved writing. From the time I was a little girl, before I could even write, I used to recite stories to my mom and make her write them down and draw pictures to accompany them. Um, So I was always interested in writing and storytelling and journaling. For some reason, I thought that when you went to college, you should study something like biology. And so I didn't know, not until later, that you could actually get degrees in reading books and and writing. So I went back um, after after hiking the John Muir Trail. I I realized that that's what I wanted to do. That, That hike was really instrumental in my discovery of of what I really wanted. 
And so I went back and got a master's degree uh, in fiction writing, actually. And then later on, I got a PhD in literature and the environment, sort of combining all of the things that I that I loved. Again, your first book, Almost Somewhere, is a chronicle of your experience hiking the John Muir Trail. That was your first hike right out of college. You know, that was what you decided to do with your life because you weren't sure what you wanted to do. Um, For those unfamiliar, what is the John Muir Trail? I mean, it goes from Mount Whitney to Yosemite, right? I mean, what's it like? Yeah, yeah. So the John Muir Trail runs from the top of Mount Whitney to Yosemite Valley. It's 211 miles along the spine of the Sierra. It crosses nine mountain passes over 11,000 feet. And I think it's a total elevation gain of something like 48,000 feet. Um, It's a beautiful remote hike. And back in 1993, the first time I hiked it, there were much fewer hikers then. Um, Now, you know, you need to get a permit and they do control the crowds. But it also, for people who are familiar with the Pacific Crest Trail, it runs along 200 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail as well. So you didn't really pick like a, some like, you know, like low level hike. I mean, this is like, you know, a major hike that you decided to do. My friend Erica, who was very athletic and very outdoorsy, suggested the hike. Uh, she had way more experience. She had been backpacking since she was a little girl. I had very little experience in the outdoors, but it sounded like a good plan to me. I was afraid to go with her. I thought a month in the wilderness alone with her would probably kill me. So I ended up inviting another friend. And this friend was my housemate's girlfriend. And he begged me to take her because she had a severe eating disorder. And back then, you know, I was inexperienced and naive and believed, as he did, that going on a month-long hike would cure her. But I didn't want Erica to know So I kept that a secret. Not only was I hiking the John Muir Trail with uh, two women, one who was, you know, athletic and sporty, the other one had never hiked or camped one single night in her life and had a severe eating disorder. And we ended up picking up a fourth, uh, a guy who was a friend of a friend, but he didn't last long because he thought that it was going to be, you know, a bunch of hippy dippy fun hiking, you know, to lakes and fishing and, you know, sitting by waterfalls. And what he ended up with were three young women who were arguing, who were crying, who were injured. And we ran out of food and a lot of our gear broke. So everything that could go wrong on that trip went wrong. You know, it's so funny because like hiking is such a popular activity, but you kind of have to go into it prepared. Like you just can't kind of go into it willy nilly. You do, especially someplace like the John Muir Trail where you might be 50 miles from a road. What did you learn about nature and and what did you learn about yourself on this on this journey? Well, as I mentioned, I was a biology major in college. And until then, I had only read male nature writers. So I had read Darwin and Thoreau and Abby and, of course, John Muir. And I never really saw nature the way that they did in their books, um, meaning that, that that sort of rugged man out in the wilderness by himself conquering nature. And I never saw nature that way. And so one of the things I was looking for is my own feminine view of nature, one that included connection 
to my friends and one that included camaraderie and one that even included being afraid and crying. And so those 28 days taught me that there are more than one view of nature, that that nature is a place where we should be connecting and not conquering. I was wondering if, uh, do you have a, a snippet of almost somewhere that you could read to us? I do, I do. I am going to read from chapter 10, which was the 10th day on the John Muir Trail. And it was after the, the guy that we picked up, Jesse, left. It was when I really started to feel that connection. So I'll just read you a quick paragraph. I was not naive enough to think 10 days without a shower or a bed made me an expert. But I understood some of what Muir had been talking about. I finally felt a connection to those mountains, the place. The landscape was no longer just setting. I realized that the going and getting there were never the point. When we are always almost somewhere, we can't be happy where we are. I leaned against the stone hut and looked out over the lake basins, rocks, and snow. Not a tree in sight. I took out my journal and sketched the view. I wanted to study the landscape, to look at it long enough until it entered me and I could carry it with me inside my body always. Yeah. I mean, and you've gone back and hiked the John Muir Trail since that first adventure. Uh, what was it like revisiting it a second and a third time? So once I saw that I was writing this book, I went back as research and I brought a biologist with me so she could help me key out all the plants and trees and flowers so that I got it right. And so I did that hike. And of course, I wrote the book and it came out. And then I hiked it again with another friend, uh, sort of a celebratory hike after the book came out. Then a couple of summers ago, my husband and I hiked it. And it was a really interesting experience. He had never hiked it before. And it was on that trip that I realized that I wanted the press to do an anniversary edition because it's been 30 years now since that original trip. So I contacted my editor and I said, what do you think about putting out an anniversary edition of Almost Somewhere and you know, including some photos? Because a lot of readers wondered why there were no photos. They wanted to see pictures from that original trip. And also an afterword that sort of showed how the trail had changed, showed how backpacking had changed, showed how I had changed. And if you'd like, I can read a paragraph from the new afterword. On that first through hike, I cried on nearly every pass, struggling with pain or exhaustion or the group dynamics. This time, I cried on every pass for very different reasons. I was grateful that my 51-year-old body could still carry me up and down mountains, bringing me into areas of sublime and rugged beauty. I knew I was exactly where I needed to be, where the mountains made me feel small and large at the same time. The passes were the highlight for me this time, not because I'm more physically fit, but because I'm mentally and emotionally stronger. I have buried both my parents, other family members, and dear friends over the past three decades. I took care of my mother when she was dying. I married and divorced and married again. I have done much harder things 
then hike a couple of hundred miles. You have this amazing experience of hiking the John Muir Trail and having documented it. I mean, it must have been pretty amazing, you know, going back there after all this time. And, and now you live in the High Sierra. I do. I do. I, I can actually hike to the John Muir Trail. All I have to do is cross my street and I can get to the John Muir Trail on trails the whole way. Um, in fact, my husband and I have, have walked from our front door to Yosemite. Tell us, what do you do when you're not writing? I mean, do you spend all your time outdoors? Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, yes and no, you know, but but mostly yes. Mostly yes. I, you know, I joke that I don't really like to exercise, but I love to recreate. So I am a very avid skier. I, I love to, to alpine ski, backcountry ski, cross-country ski. I'm, I'm out skiing most winter days. Uh, in the summer, I love to hike and paddleboard and backpack. My outdoor world is is such a part of my daily life that if I go a couple of days without it, I start to go a little stir crazy. So what would you say is your absolute favorite thing to do where you live, South Lake Tahoe, High Sierra? Well, my very favorite thing is backcountry skiing. Um, it's something that I wouldn't recommend for people who haven't taken an avalanche safety course. But if if people haven't, you know, taken an avalanche class or they don't have the equipment, they can still go cross-country skiing. But the thing I love about backcountry skiing is that there's nobody else there. And you can enjoy the wilderness and recreate at the same time, the solitude and the quiet, and also ski. That's pretty amazing. So, okay, so say I was planning a, a visit to your area. Uh, give me an itinerary for the perfect low-key weekend in South Lake Tahoe. It's, it's winter right now, so what should I see and do? Okay, I think on Friday afternoon, if it was sunny, I might take you to the Hangar, which is a little outdoor bar um, that's popular with both tourists and locals. And on Saturday morning, I would probably take you out to Hope Valley and go cross-country skiing. And if you wanted to alpine ski, I would take you to my favorite resort, which is Kirkwood, where you can also cross-country ski. Um, so if you are coming with somebody who, you know, one person loves to alpine, the other one just wants to cross-country ski, Kirkwood's great. You can use the um, groom tracks there. Uh, dogs are allowed. You know, it's great for kids. Um, but I definitely take you out to Kirkwood and on the way back, um, we might stop for some soup or hot chocolate at a wilder resort, which is in the, um, Hope Valley. And once we got back to town, I'd probably take you to the independent bookstore because as a writer, of course, it's my favorite place. It's called Cup of Tahoe and they do a great cup of coffee and they have a great selection of books. And of course, they carry my books, so I, I love them. Um, and then Saturday night, you know, I don't go out very much. So I'd probably send you out on your own to go, you know, listen to music at the casinos or go to the um, Heavenly Village and you could go ice skating or, you know, you, you could even go up the gondola and go tubing once we get a little bit more snow. And then on Sunday, I would probably take you for a walk out to the lake. Um, all of the beaches are closed, but you can still walk out there and, um, and walk along the lake in the winter, which is, which is beautiful. 
What about for the more adventurous type of traveler? I mean, what do you what do you have in mind for them? Oh, well, I would definitely take you back country skiing at Carson Pass. Before we let you go, can you offer any kind of like sage advice for listeners who may be considering hiking the John Muir Trail? Yes, I would say to choose your hiking companions carefully. Also, make sure your shoes are comfortable and you've you've broken them in. (laughs) Super important for such a long hike. Yes. Do you recommend people bring a journal with them too? I mean, it was such an important part of your experience. I do recommend it. I mean, I think people now bring their phones and they take maybe notes in their phones and they take a lot more photographs, you know, than we used to when we used to have film. Um, But I... I wouldn't want to go on a backpacking trip without a journal and a pen. I just wouldn't. I mean, it's such a part of my experience because sometimes when I'm in out in nature, you know, just sitting and observing, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe you like to draw and that could be your, your sort of keen observation, but sitting still and writing or drawing, I think enhances the outdoor experience, whether whether you consider yourself a writer or an artist or not. Yeah, absolutely. Suzanne, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Suzanne Roberts is a freelance writer, memoirist, and poet based in California's High Sierra. To learn more about her book, Almost Somewhere, 28 Days on the John Muir Trail, and her other publications, visit SuzanneRoberts.net. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope to see you in the Golden State soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Our producer is Kate Eppelboim. Jessica Marshall is our technical lead. John Godfrey is our editorial director. And the theme song is by Aaron Taos. Additional music by Casey. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for those looking for a spontaneous getaway this holiday season, look no further than Visit California's Road Trip Hub. There you'll find a handful of action-packed itineraries and helpful tips for navigating the Golden State like a pro. Check it out at visitcalifornia.com.